0: Be free to say whatever I want to say. Thanks, Joe. <laughs> Fantastic. I was um, praying on Friday and, and I suppose it's, it's easier when you come and, and you're carrying a bit of a organisational kind of hat that you come and you just try and say the thing that is relevant to the organisation that you're representing. He actually, I think whenever I go to a place to meet with the body of Christ, to meet with family like here, I always want to say, God, how can I be a blessing? How can I enrich you know, what you are doing in this context? And so I was asking on Friday, what's the context of how I tell the story of Christians around the world who are suffering for their faith in a way that enriches your purposes here? And just this phrase came to mind, fearless faith. And I felt God wanted to release something of a fearless faith um, in you as individuals, um, not just today, but I felt that there's something as a mantle over the church of actually that God had, had called you to fearless faith. And whether that's something that's been in the past or something new that God wants to release in the future, there's this dynamic of fearless faith that God wanted to to invest in you. And as I was just praying um, down here this morning, it was a beautiful time of, of worship and just the prophetic you know, words began to come out. Consciously, often the prophetic makes you feel a little bit uncomfortable, doesn't it? Um, whether it's that you hear God say something or somebody else does. A, a number of years ago, I was walking through a, a park and walked past this guy and I felt God say, you know, his name's Daniel. And, uh, and I carried on thinking, well, what on earth does that mean? And I felt God say, I want you to go and give this word. Um, to this guy Daniel and I felt deeply uncomfortable and awkward. I was just enjoying a walk in the park, was on my way um, to Coffee Central for a coffee and my day was being uncomfortably interrupted by this thought that this guy's name might be Daniel and this and God might be saying something. I'm not going to tell all of that story but it transpired that his name was Daniel and actually that was the day that he went to, was going to commit suicide and that intervention on that day stopped him from going to commit suicide. But it was uncomfortable because it interrupted my plan. And sometimes the prophetic is uncomfortable because Jesus is wanting to align us again with true, true north. And our circumstances generally want to align us with the status quo. And so this provocation to be about the purposes of God often means a level of discomfort. And uh, in the midst of worship, when that child said yes at the back, and then Joe reiterated, I felt God wanted you to roar that yes, and almost as a church to roar that yes. <laughs> exactly, absolutely. That there's, there's something of a, you know, just a breaking out of containment with a fearless faith that God wants to, to release. And the prophetic, it provokes us to surrender what we've known in order to take hold of what we've not yet known. And there's something that God wants to do. Here with you, that there's a surrendering of something that you've known in order to enter into what you long for, what your heart really longs for, but gets kind of buried in disappointment or discouragement. And actually the Lord is saying, I want to penetrate that place with fearless faith. So can I just pray that over you? So Lord, whatever it is that you want to, through this morning's tour, just, Lord, deposit that would just arouse, Lord, a fearless faith in pursuit of you and your purposes. I want to pray a release of that, Jesus. A release of that, Lord, that out of the mouth of babes, just declarations of truth come, and, and there's that response then to say, yes, God, yes, that is the way we're going to go, and I pray that blessing, that release, on just every single person here this morning. Amen. So I have three goals today. Um, One, to bring honour to Jesus. Secondly, to strengthen you in your walk, in your pursuit of Jesus, in your identity and as your, in your activity as an expression of the local body of Christ in this context. And my third goal is to strengthen the local church in its global context where following Jesus um, costs so much. And I hope that through some of the things I share today that it will lead to that strengthening of the local church in that context through just, just stirring prayer Who's stirring a desire in you to to act and to speak out? Who's stirring a desire in you to give and to support? I'll see you a very active church. Just hearing about that beautiful charity, <laughs> found my heart just melting, you know, about the things that God wants to do around the world, and what a privilege that we get to be a part of that. There are more than 250 million Christians around the world who share our faith but don't share our freedoms. And that's quite a hard statistic to get our heads around. And hopefully as we go on through the morning, you'll understand what that looks like for people around the world. And as Joe said, it can be a slightly heavy thing. And I don't want it to be heavy, because actually if you have the privilege of meeting brothers and sisters from places around the world who are daily suffering for their faith, the one thing that you are not allowed is pity. Because actually, there's incredible grace, there's an incredible hopefulness, there's an incredible courage in the midst of that. So though the stories, some of them are quite harrowing, actually, what they do is they point to Jesus and they are incredibly hope-filled at the same time. After the martyrdom of Stephen in, in Acts, this should hopefully come off in there, it says that there arose a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. You've got this dynamic beginning of Acts where the Holy Spirit is poured out at Pentecost and, and the church that was um, intimidated and hiding back suddenly is catalyzed into this confident declaration of the gospel. And as they do that, a great persecution arises against the church in Jerusalem. And there's a key challenge there that with the, with the intensity of the penetration of the gospel comes an intensity of persecution in the church And that same reality exists today, that all around the world, where the kingdom of God is forcefully advancing, there's also a strong opposition to that at the same time. And each year, Open Doors produces a survey called the World Watch List, which assesses and analyses the reality of persecution of Christians around the world and identifies the top 50 places in the world where it is most difficult and most dangerous to walk in the ways of Jesus. And over the last five years, this reality has intensified even more so. Here you've got here the rise of Christian persecution in Asia. And what you see back in twenty fourteen, you've got high persecution in a lot of those places. In the last five years, a number of those places have moved to very high persecution or extreme persecution. And the the way that countries and experiences are classified in terms of persecution is to do with things like you are it is illegal to own a Bible. That would be a form of persecution. It is illegal to share your faith. If you share your faith, um, you can in some countries in the world um, be killed on the spot without any legal ramifications to that. In other countries, you can be thrown into prison for that. If you convert um, from your historic faith um, to follow Jesus, you can go home and find that all of your property has been reclaimed. Those are some of the challenges of extreme persecution. Extreme persecution is where there's just a prevalence of that in the experience of society. It's very difficult to get our heads round it in this context, how it could be to live in a place where you are not allowed to express your faith. I know that you're looking at the Bible at the moment. We heard of a, a woman in North Korea. Um, who had come to faith um, in a country where it is illegal to really be walking out your Christian faith. Technically, religious freedom is there um, to be a Christian, but if you start to walk out your following of Jesus, it brings you into a point of clash uh, with the state and your refusal to idolise the supreme leaders. And it's illegal to own a Bible in North Korea. So this woman, she'd come to faith, uh, a Bible had been smuggled um, so that she had that and she used to hide it in, her, in um, the beehives at the end of her garden um, because that was a place she felt would be safe. One day the house got raided by the secret police who caught wind of the fact that she might have some illegal material. They searched the house, they didn't find anything. They took her seven-year-old daughter to one side and said, we are going to kill your mummy unless you tell us where your mummy has hidden something. The daughter, trying to protect her mummy, told the secret police that sometimes she saw her mummy go down the garden and take something out of the beehive. They went and recovered the Bible from the beehive. And the mummy and the dad and all of the children were taken into a political prison camp and nobody's heard anything of them for, for 10 years now. That's the reality of the cost of having a Bible in some places around the world. Again, that's hard, isn't it, to hear that and to engage with that. And yet Christians in these contexts are willing to take the risk because of the value of the Bible. And actually in places like North Korea, there's many Christians that have memorized huge chunks of the Bible because of the scarcity of the word of God. I'm just going to play a video um, which will just give you a brief overview of just the top five um, nations uh, where persecution is most intense. This was launched um, in Parliament um, two weeks ago. We had about three weeks ago, so we had about 80 MPs there, um, and Jeremy Hunt, the Foreign Secretary, was there and shared a bit about it as well. Um, so this just gives you a bit of an overview of the context around the world.
1: Imagine being arrested because you own a Bible or finding that the government has suddenly closed down your church. Imagine being denied education or employment because you're a Christian or being thrown into prison just because you told someone about Jesus. Imagine being forced out of your home because of your faith or living in a country where there is absolutely no freedom of belief. Hard to imagine, isn't it? Yet, this is the cost of faith for millions of Christians around the world. Every day, they pay this price with courage and hope. And these are the top five countries where their faith costs the most. Number 5. Pakistan In Pakistan, an estimated 700 Christian women and girls are abducted every year. Any Christian can find themselves accused of blasphemy and end up in jail or attacked by an angry mob. But even though churches have been bombed and attacked, Pakistani Christians continue to meet together and shine God's light. Number 4. Libya In the lawless state of Libya, militant Islamists attack Christians with impunity. Desperate Christian migrants have been killed or sold into slavery. Yet despite the danger, Libyans are still coming to Christ. Number three, Somalia. In Somalia, just being suspected of being a Christian can lead to instant execution. But brave Christians still gather in small groups, constantly changing the location of their meetings to avoid detection. Number two, Afghanistan. There are only a few thousand Christians in Afghanistan and they keep their faith hidden. Anyone known to follow Jesus can face violence from their family or tribe. But even here, people encounter Christ through radio programs or, miraculously, in dreams. Number 1. North Korea North Korea is number one for the 18th consecutive year. In this land, the leaders are worshipped as gods. Christians are viewed as enemies of the state. Some 50 to 70,000 Christians are imprisoned in labor camps. Hannah was sent to a North Korean labor camp because of her faith. I was praying with my eyes closed, and the guard was beating me, saying, Why are you trying to pray? Are you insane? As I prayed, I believed that other Christians would be praying for me. This is what I prayed to the Lord in prison. God have mercy on us. Save my young children and my family. Let this prison become a church one day so that it can be a place of worship for you. I praise my beloved Jesus who answered my prayer and freed me from the handcuffs and opened the prison doors. Millions of courageous Christians are paying the cost of following Christ. Open Doors works with local church partners in over 60 countries around the world to provide long term support and bring them hope. Our underground networks smuggle Bibles and literature, offer legal advice, train church leaders and other Christians, and provide vital practical aid. In North Korea, your support is keeping 60,000 believers alive with food medicine and clothing. You can keep hope alive for your persecuted family. Join the secret network today and start bringing hope to Christians in the darkest, most dangerous places on earth.
0: I spent some time with um, Hannah saw on a video from North Korea in November and heard a bit of her story and encountered something of her faith. Hannah, her husband and her daughter and son, um, had, because of the conditions in North Korea, um, there's a 10-year kind of famine within which 3 million people died in North Korea. It's called the Arduous March, is how it's referred to. And in that time, they escaped to China because of the reasons of famine. Whilst they were in China, they encountered um, the gospel through the local church in China, and they encountered Jesus, and just their hearts were won over for him to a point that they then began to share their faith on the streets of China, and of that activity, uh, because China is an interesting place, um, they were arrested uh, for sharing their faith publicly, discovered they were North Koreans and repatriated to North Korea and put into a, a political prisoners camp because they'd been sharing their faith. And uh, they were in that uh, camp for, for a number of years. Um, it was a pretty horrific experience with torture being a fairly regular experience. I'm not going to go into the details of what that torture was because it's not overly helpful. Um, But one night, miraculously, um, they found themselves going to be released. Um, Hannah and her husband were united, having been separate in that place. Hannah couldn't even recognise her husband. He was so disfigured by his horrific injuries. At that point, he had a broken collarbone and broken ribs and couldn't stand up straight, such was the abuse that he'd felt. Um, Her and her husband, therefore their 12-year-old son and daughter, were let out that night. And, uh, and went to stay with some friends in North Korea. They had a conversation, and fearing reprisals, but also uh, with the starvation. Um, Hannah's husband suggested that she take their daughter um, back to China, and that he and, and their 12-year-old son would follow a month later. So Hannah and her daughter miraculously made it back across to China. Again, I can't go through all the details of, of the journey and, and how that happens through various secret networks. Um, but once they got to China they connected again with the church that first led them to, to faith and they waited there for a month they waited there for two months waited for three months and yet the husband and son never turned up um, Hannah later found out that her husband had died um, within a month of being released from prison um, due to the injuries that he'd sustained and her 12 year old son hadn't been able to cross the river um, so had been left in North Korea alone um, she hasn't seen her son for 20 years now And uh, as she told the story of her son, you know, the the pain that she's carrying is very, very evident um, for her. Maybe we could just spend just just a moment, just in quiet, just praying for um, her son to be recovered, to be rescued. Lord, have mercy. I found her story particularly challenging because when it relates to your immediate experience, it rests in a different place. And I've got a 12-year-old son. And so just imagining him being alone in a place like that was just a very, very challenging thing. Hannah told me of when she was in China waiting for her husband and son, again, just that love for Jesus burned so strongly that daily she'd go out onto the streets of China from which she'd first been arrested, looking for an opportunity to tell people about Jesus for whom she'd been imprisoned in the first place. She said day after day she went out and she faced rebuttals until one day after six months of praying for opportunities and sharing. Um, a woman lingered a little bit longer as Hannah began to kind of tell her of her faith but then a the woman cut her off and, and said that actually no she wasn't interested at all. Hannah at this point Clearly visibly looked crestfallen in this woman and had pity on her. So well, I'm not interested, but but there is this person who I know who might be interested. And so gave Hannah a name and a number and an address. Hannah went to the address and found herself standing outside the gates of, of an army barracks, which is not a great place to be as an illegal immigrant from North Korea. Um, and when Hannah asked after the name that she'd been given, the official answered, sorry. Hannah then went to the um, the guard tower that was there and said do they know this woman they said that they didn't um, but they said that Hannah could use um, their phone number So she used the phone and she phoned the number and a man answered the phone and it was the highest ranking official um, in the barracks um, who said that he would come down and see her at the gate. He came down to the gate and said, well, she's my wife. I'll take you to see her because she's not well. So took Hannah in uh, to meet his wife. His wife was um, bedridden with advanced uh, cancer and, and Hannah went and began praying for this woman and wept over this woman. Um, and in the midst of that this woman encountered the love of God and she gave her life to Christ and for three years Hannah smuggled herself in every week into this prison camp in order to disciple this woman she, she uh, quite humorously told of how she used to squeeze herself through this hole in the wall where the cats and dogs used to come in and out of and she said her hips were a little bit large for the hole so she had to kind of wiggle her way through the hole um, to get there But every week for three years, she went in there to disciple this woman that then led to discipling four other women who within the barracks had come to encounter the love of Jesus in that place. And uh, as I (coughs) heard her telling this story, I was just very, very challenged by that um, and provoked by the questions, how much do I value my faith? How much do I value Jesus? How much do I value the gospel? And how much do I value Others and their need to hear the good news of Jesus, and the rite of Hebrews admonishes us to not give up the habit of meeting together and meeting um, together, but to spur one another on towards love and good deeds. And I find Hannah's testimony um, spurs me on to love and good deeds. Just that endurance in the midst of persecution it spurs me on. And many of the stories of those who are persecuted Christians they provoke and they purify the clarity of my vision of Jesus and the call to go and tell others about him It's so easy to become kind of bleary-eyed in relation to the things of the gospel and we just get on as live life as normal but persecution happens because of the message of Jesus Jesus said that's Hannah sorry Jesus said if they persecute me they will also persecute you and Paul, writing to young Timothy, says, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Peter writes, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Christ. And He goes on to say one other thing, if this works. There we go. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. And Peter is normalizing persecution as part of the course of walking in the way of Jesus. And if you read the early, if you read the New Testament, it's written by persecuted Christians, two persecuted Christians, within the context of persecution. Persecution was was a part of the norm of what it was to stand firm and to walk in the way of Jesus. And yet often for us we see persecution as a bit of a niche issue, but biblically it's a normal issue. Why? Because the gospel and the kingdom, they're subversive and disruptive to the status quo of the world. The message of Jesus is not complementary to life as we know it. And there's a challenge there. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says, We are hard-pressed. So it's not that one. Don't worry. In 2 Corinthians 4 4, so go back to it, it says, The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. That's what Paul says. He says, There's this challenge, there's this kind of um, resistance. The God of this world seeks to blind and keep people from seeing the glory of Jesus Christ. And that's really where persecution happens. Persecution is the obscuring of the vision of Jesus. And to that regard, one says all of us constantly within a context where actually Jesus is, you know, the enemy's attempt is to obscure our vision of Jesus. And in some places, that opposition is more intense than in others. Persecution biblically and historically and indeed globally focuses on destroying the messengers of the gospel, or by destroying the message of the gospel. That's the iron fist and the velvet glove. If you know anything about kind of Marxism and socialism, there's kind of this pitch and it's really helpful when you think about persecution. But actually, the iron fist is this desire to crush and destroy and, and parts of our body, part of the church, every day they live with that experience of that crush and that destruction. But the other part of it is also the velvet glove of compromise. And C.S. Lewis famously writes, doesn't he in the Scrutrape Letters, that the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was to convince the world he doesn't exist. There's that kind of deceitfulness, there's that kind of pulling over um, the wool over our eyes. The velvet glove of compromise. And the biblical, historical, and indeed current reality is that actually in the face of such opposition, the church remains strong and is growing. And I can imagine that it really irritates the enemy. And we see the, 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 the resurrection is just the glorious kind of revelation that God will not be defeated and the victory is Christ and actually the early church where the enemy sought to crush and to destroy it actually in the midst of that rises up and around the world, some of the greatest evidences for me, some of the things that most stir my faith is meeting Christians who are in the most intense suffering, the joy of the Lord is their strength in a way that I just don't know it. And so part of me is like, Lord, I want that, but I don't want the persecution being on the side, but I want that. And as Peter says, actually in the midst of trials, there's a refining and there's a revelation of Jesus. And it's, it's hard when you're not in that moment to understand the grace of God that is present in that moment. But actually God gives us the grace for the moments that we are in. Even in the midst of that, God is present. We read at the start of Acts, in Acts 4, I'm just conscious of time, so I won't read it now, but if you read between verses 23 and 31, and, and, the, and Peter's just been released from prison, comes back, and actually the, the early church is rejoicing that they're in prison, have been set free. And what they pray for is, they don't pray that God would protect them from it all, but they pray that God would enable them to stand strong in the midst of it, that God would enable them to be bold with the gospel. And in Philippians... Okay, says, so so I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. This is Paul writing. As a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. That kind of biblical reality is the reality around the world. That in the midst of challenges, um, the gospel is advancing. We had some... Uh, Leaders over from Southeast Asia recently and you know, they were talking about a country where it's illegal to be a Christian, it's illegal to, be, uh, to have a Bible, how you know, believers meet in threes and fours at midnight under the cover of darkness in order to read their Bibles, to encourage each other and to pray together. Such is the commitment to Christ, despite it all. And Paul writes, doesn't he, of the, of the glory in suffering with Christ. And it's hard to process that in our context for being here in, in Winchester this morning. But actually there is a glory of the presence of Christ in the midst of suffering. And Paul talks about in his letter to the Philippians about you know, compared just to the phenomenal knowledge of Christ, he considers all else as loss. There is a cost to following Jesus. And the question is, is he worth it? Is he worth it? Just very, very quickly... I'm going to just tell you the story of Behir. Behir is known as Christian number seven um, in Turkmenistan. The reason he's Christian number seven is that he was the seventh Christian in Turkmenistan. And he was from Muslim background, um, heard the gospel um, within a context, and he prayed, God, if what I've heard today is true, make yourself known to me. In, in his encounter over the next few days, Jesus really came to him and made himself known to him very personally to the point that his heart was totally won over for Jesus. And he was so full of the love of God that he was desperate to then tell others around him within a context that it was illegal to do so. His friends in the KGB, he was a KGB officer, uh, warned him that if he carried on doing that, he was going to get himself in trouble. He did carry on because he like, how can I not share the joy that is in my heart? He was then captured, he was interrogated, they tried to re-educate him, but he refused. They tortured him with electric shock treatment. And one day, after severe beating, and the guards um, had his foot in his mouth and said to Behir, this voice will never speak of Jesus. And he took his foot out and Behir said, you may stop my mouth speaking, but you cannot deny what is in my heart. I can't go into the details. Miraculously, he was released from prison. He's now in Turkey. And we said to him, "But here, can we tell your story?" He said, "You can tell my story on one condition." And we said, "Okay. You know what's that?" He said, "You need to tell everybody who hears this story that if I had to go through it all again, I would, because Jesus is worth it." And you you hear that story, you meet that faith, and it's not rhetoric. There's a reality of a conviction that Jesus is worth it. Again, I spent a chunk of time last year with Hey Wu. Um, who some of you heard in, in, the, in the summer and I haven't got time to tell all of her story this morning but there's one moment, one story she told me that really gripped my heart which is after four days of fairly intense um, suffering and torture she was lying down that night on the concrete floor just in extreme pain and she said Jesus walked into her cell and Jesus said to her, my daughter, today you walked on water and as Hei Wu told me that story this is the only point that she welled up and she overflowed she didn't well up when she told about the extremities of the torture that she'd felt. So there was no emotion almost attached to that. But when she talked about Jesus and the revelation of Jesus to her that, her heart broke. It was so strong to her that he was worth it. He was worth it. And again, I found myself provoked to ask the questions, how much do I value my faith? How much do I value Jesus? How much do I value the gospel? And how much do I value the faith of others? 1 Corinthians 12, it says when one part of the body suffers, all suffer. And Paul in that is laying down a theology and a truth that provokes us out of isolation and into community. And that community stretches across this floor as we care for each other within this community and all of the situations that I'm sure you have faced in the last five years and will face going forward. But it also stretches across the globe and relates to the extended family of God on the other side of the world in isolation for their faith. How do we suffer with those who are suffering in those contexts? How do we stand with them? What do we do with such truth and what do we do with such testimony? For me personally, I run through a range of emotions on a regular basis. Some helpful, some less so. Sometimes I guard my heart, but sometimes then I find myself becoming hard hearted, and so I have to soften my heart. And it's this kind of mixture of kind of being broken, you know. But that's the reality for others. And I'm sure and appreciate that this morning's talk will probably have stirred a range of emotions in you. Some of the stories are hard to hear. Sometimes the stories overwhelm me. Sometimes the stories inspire me. Sometimes the stories leave me challenged to live differently. Sometimes the stories leave me feeling really inadequate in my faith. Sometimes I want to push the reality away and sometimes I want to draw the reality closer because I long for something more of just that love for Jesus, that vision of Jesus that is so compelling. And the reality is the gospel is uncomfortable and the cost is uncomfortable, but is Jesus worth it? And our brothers and sisters suffering around the world would shout a thousand times, yes, he is worth it. He is absolutely worth it. The early church, through the writings of the New Testament, a thousand times shout, yes, he is worth it. He is worth it. And both challenge us to not allow the velvet glove of compromise and the intimidation of going against the flow, to stand against in the way of making Jesus known to those who currently sit in darkness. The persecuted church revealed Jesus in a compellingly beautiful and challenging way. They're a gift to us to help us to stand stronger in the gospel, in our context, to stand stronger in the midst of suffering, to stand stronger in our vision of Jesus. And persecution, as we said before, seeks to obscure the vision of Jesus because if our vision of Jesus is diminished, then our vision of ourselves is diminished. And if our vision of ourselves is diminished, then our vision of our future and of our purpose is diminished. And therefore our participation of the adventure of faith is diminished. That's where the enemy starts. He diminishes the vision of Jesus, causes us to see a smaller Jesus, because then we see a smaller us, and then we see a smaller purpose, and we live in a smaller way. The evidence is of the church that is suffering, is that the vision of Jesus is compelling and rich, and that tells them about who they are, their worth, their value, even in the midst of the suffering. And that gives them a sense of purpose to keep going. If we lose the big picture perspective, we start to live in a diminished way, turning back in on ourselves with a limited circle of influence. When the Father has called us to take the revelation of Jesus to the ends of the earth. And this isn't about giving everything up and going itinerant, uh, though it could mean that. But it's about throwing our all in for the outcome of the message of Jesus being extended to the ends of the earth. That is why we're here. That is what we've been rescued for. And it may not be about you going, but equally it may be about you supporting that initiative in the lives of others. We've already heard some of those this morning. Through your prayers, through your actions, through your finances. You see, we're not our own. We're bought at a price. You matter. Your life matters. Your story matters. Your future matters. And persecuted Christians are like a reality check. They're like this plumb line as to the value of our faith. But they also remind us of the reality of the clash of kingdoms. They challenge us to remain alert, to stay awake. Peter writes, do not be unaware of the enemy's schemes. And so often, I can be unaware, I don't know about you. But being connected with the persecuted church, it keeps that biblical challenge fresh as we see just the enemy's schemes just exposed. And it also keeps us conscious of the more insidious nature of the enemy's attempts on us just to reduce our vision of Jesus, to reduce our faith, to reduce our boldness, to compel us to a life of comfort and ease within the status quo. Being connected to the persecuted Christians is a real gift to us. But we also are a gift to the persecuted church through our prayers, through our actions and through our gifts. And the persecuted church need you and they need me to stand with them that they might stand stronger. As I said earlier, my hope today is that you'd be inspired to see Jesus in a clearer and more compelling way, that you'll once again remember and rejoice in the grace of God to you in the gospel, and you'll be emboldened with the gospel in this context. But I also hope that you'll be inspired to commit yourself to carry the burden of the church that exists within these circumstances, of such extreme opposition to the message and also to the messengers of the gospel. And I hope that you'll feel stirred to stand in the gap as the church, Christians in these settings really do need us to stand with them. And that looks like giving unashamedly. The church needs the resource that we have in the West to enable them to stand strong. That's about the provision of Bibles. It's also about the provision of things like trauma care. In many places, uh, rape of women is a key part of the persecution of the gospel. So we run a number of trauma care centers and we support them. When I say we, I'm talking as the, the church, the body of Christ, Open Doors resources the local church in those local contexts to be the local church, strengthening the church to be the church. It's also about providing uh, food in places like North Korea still where actually poverty um, for many is still quite pronounced. So we need resources in order to do that. We also need people to speak up, to act. We had about 45,000 letters that were sent to MPs all across this country asking them to stand up for persecuted Christians. And that's why we had 80 MPs come to the World Watch launch in Parliament three weeks ago. And we also need Christians to pray. And this, more than anything, is what Christians in isolation and persecution ask for. Because they understand that the arm of the Lord is not too short. They understand the power of prayer. That God is able to do far more than we can ask or imagine. So. That's the thing that comes through most strongly. And really as Open Doors Weeks is to create a connection. Our desire and my hope in being here this morning is just to create a connection, just to increase the sense of proximity that actually how we pray, how we give, how we act here makes a huge difference to those who are isolated in other parts of the world. And Brother Andrew, when he first began smuggling Bibles into the communist bloc, the reason he did that was he felt compelled by the scripture in Revelation 2 to strengthen what remains. And that's the part that we have an invitation to stand in, to strengthen what remains, to strengthen the church. When Nigel and Joe first asked me to to come speak here today, they asked that I specifically speak about North Korea. And what you've got on your chairs is just an invitation really to take the next step uphold the prophetic word that came about that for the church but this is also about taking the next step, will you stand with um, particularly persecuted Christians in, in North Korea and, uh, and if you give a gift of £10 or more we're able to smuggle um, a Bible into North Korea for that, what you'll also get back um, as a little gift to you is this a little devotional which has got 365 days and something to reflect on, something to read, something to pray for Christians across the world. Um, I hope that would be a blessing to you. But actually the main point of this isn't that you get something back, um, but is that we're able to smuggle a Bible into North Korea. And um, With that as well, if I can apologetically and honestly say, um, if you are able to give £10 or more and if you're able to support regularly, that is so, so helpful. As I said at the start of the talk, Actually, persecution is on the increase globally. Now, part of me, if I look back in church history, I'm quite excited by that because if persecution is increasing, it also means that God's purposes are increasing, and so there's a cost in that, but there's also a compelling call in that as well. But it is increasing all across the world, and therefore, the needs that we are hearing about from Syria, from Sub-Saharan Africa, from Central Asia, from Southeast Asia, are massive and at the moment we are not able to meet the need that is there to support the church in some of these places again so many stories I could tell you about so many of these places but if you are able to do that that would be great and Nigel and Joe said that they would really like to for every secret church devotional that is sponsored from here is actually that they would like to give a gift from the church to, to match that and um, to support the church around the world so um, if you are able to do that I would love you to but again I don't want you to give out of compulsion I tried not to pull on the heartstrings. I haven't intentionally done that, although my own heartstrings have been pulled in in giving a message. But you know, do weigh that up and take it seriously. And if you're able to fill that in today and bring it to the back, um, then we'll process that. And if not able to do that today, if you can return that to Nigel and Joe, um, they'd like to know how many people are able to do that so that we can then increase that from the church as well. Um, I think I need to close, don't I? So as I close, maybe we could just... um, just two things I'd love to do. Just one, if we could just maybe stand for a moment and just um, just pray, just whatever is in your heart to pray. If you're happy praying out loud, go for that. If you prefer praying in your own thoughts, um, if prayer looks like thinking you know, rather than declaring, that's fine, the Lord hears the intention of our heart. But maybe you could just pray for maybe one of the people that you've heard about this morning or one of the, the nations. Let's just do that for a moment and then we'll just do one other thing to finish. Let's just pray. Father, thank you that your arm is not too short. Thank you, Father, that our prayers are powerful and effective. And Thank you, Father, that you are able to do far more than we can ask or imagine. And so we bring our prayers to you knowing that they matter, that they make a difference. We just pray, Lord, would you extend just your arm, would you extend the comfort of your Holy Spirit right now Particularly, we pray for North Korea, Lord, those 70,000 Christians that we know of who are in political prison camps, in isolation. Lord, we just pray by your Spirit, be present. Would you bring comfort? Would you extend your church and your gospel? And just as a final thing, if just something in hearing the message today, something has been stirred in you that you want to respond to. Um, whether it's that you've never chosen to, to follow Jesus yet and there's something you've heard this morning that's stirred your desire to want to throw your all in in following Jesus, then would love to just pray with you in beginning that journey. Or it may be that something has stirred in you in, in terms of a desire for your vision of Jesus to be renewed, to be sharpened, or for your boldness to be strengthened, or to receive just comfort and courage in your current suffering. And we'd love again just to invite you to come forward that we can pray. There isn't like a special thing going on at the front, but it just enables people just to come alongside you and just to pray and to bless what God is doing. So just as Nigel comes up to do worship, just want to encourage you, and just maybe come and just use this space. If there's something of response that you want to make to Jesus, and he can meet you exactly where you are, but there's something sometimes of just that stepping out and saying, you know, God, I want to meet you in this place. So maybe as Nigel leads us in a, Song or something, maybe just come forward and a few of us will gather to pray. But thank you so much.